Amen. If you have your Bibles, um, we're going to be in 1 John for the next couple of weeks. Um, you'll find it also there in the worship folder, the scripture reading. Short passage. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. This is the word of God. Let us hear it and be blessed by it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this moment when you inter- intercede and you intersect with our lives. I want to thank you for what you are up to in the individual lives that are here and for the, the reason that we have hope. I thank you that we are uh, among all people uh, most hopeful and we are those who are leaning into the future. Father, thank you for the blessing it is to hear your word. Father, to hear your word preached and then to hold in our hands the very elements of the gospel. And we ask that you would, you would bless us today, that we could then, in the overflow of this joy, uh, serve you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you. I hope you are doing well. Uh, I recognize that this little quick series, a part, three-part series, the world, the flesh, and the devil might be hitting you a little bit quick and sort of where did this come from? And uh, I'm going to do a better job to communicate to you where we're going in sermons. And so you can prepare during the week and read ahead. So the next uh, three Sundays, I would like you to reflect on, obviously, 1 John in, as the big picture, but 1 John Chapter 2, 15 through 17 would be a great place to spend some time, particularly this week. And uh, today we're going to look at the world. Um, And uh, let me, first of all, uh, assure you uh, that uh, I am not going to be coming from an an anti-joy position. Uh, That somehow there's just something so terrible about the world uh, that we can't enjoy things. Uh, So my my stance on this is that, uh, first of all, we're told in the Bible... Uh, when God created the world, that he placed his benediction upon it. And he said all that he created was good. Yes, it was very good. So our starting point for uh, this creation is that God has blessed it, but it has fallen into a disarray and into ruin. And so this morning we're going to look at the world and look at the core issues that make up that subject um, but we're not going to come from a, from a position uh, where, uh, where we are sort of tramp, uh, trampling upon all joy, uh, but we are going to look carefully at what makes up that, that world, uh, that place that is called the world there in 1 John 2, uh, 15 through, through 17. 
that Christians have generally struggled with how do we respond to this subject of living in this world. What do we do? The world is a, is a hard place. There's conflicting philosophies. There's anti-God uh, philosophies out there. How do, we, how, how do we interact with this world? What does it look like to show that I, am, I, have, I don't have my tent stakes in this world? What does that look like? And Christians have struggled. Uh, is it a haircut? Uh, is it a style of dress? Um, does it mean I have to become monastic, uh, ascetic? Uh, I d- depart from the world. Christians have really struggled. What does this look like? I think there's a key in this text that will tell us uh, what it looks like to make a, a departure from trusting in the world or living in the world, and it has uh, 100% to do with the Father's love. Uh, the Father's love is the, the antidote for the world. Now, let's take a look um, at this passage. The passage um, unfolds for us fairly simple, fairly simply. Uh, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then we have an explanation of what on earth is going on here. In verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the, and then we have three things, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life in the English Standard Version. Some of your other versions may have the boastful pride of life. Other versions have the the pride of possessions. So there's something going on there in that last idea, and that is that we have, we, we're sort of self-sufficient in our, our view of, of the things we own. And this boasting, this fleshly quality, in fact, you could describe the world as corporate flesh, corporate flesh. There's sort of a conspiracy going on between our own flesh, that is that fallen part of us, and the the systems of the world, the institutions of the world. And so there's a conspiracy going on in that, in that it's a cooperation. The two are, are working together with each other. So what we have is the world, and we could take politics, we could take education, we could take, take marketing or business, or we could take the way that people interact with each other and the institutions that form those interactions and what we have is a particular way of acting, acting or being. And here's that acting or here's that being. It is a totalizing way of thinking. What do I mean by that? If you were to uh, go by Gate 84 at United Terminal in San Francisco, uh, I go through that gate quite often because that's where the United uh, Hawaii flights usually uh, disembark. And at Gate 84, there is, for the last 10 years, there's been a finance company that has owned a uh, backlit sign there. It's kind of very well done, and they change the, the sign. And when I look at that sign, uh, it is telling me to invest in them, telling me, come. It's an alluring power. Come. And they tell me uh, what they will do for me. They give me assurances of how wise they are. They give me assurances of that they can take care of me. They give me assurances how, how they and they alone know how to handle money. But, but more is going on when you look at that image than just an investment in a particular company. 
what that, what that image is doing and what I am willing for that image to do in me is this. I want that image to represent all my needs. I want that company to take care of everything about me. I want that, I, I would willingly give myself to the hope that is expressed behind that company. You might think, oh, well, Pastor Todd, you're just messed up. Who, who does that? Well, uh, ladies, when you buy lipstick, what are you hoping for? There's something more going on there. I know I'm, I'm meddling, sorry. When you buy a pair of shoes, is it just buying a pair of shoes, or is there something else going on there? In other words, in our, all of our interactions in this world, there's something about it that, that draws us way deep in and we, we, are, we are given comfort and security, and we're told something about, about the exchange. We give our money, and there's an exchange coming our way. In all of our interactions, perhaps you go to a, 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 an educational institution, there's a promise given. What's that promise? It's a totalizing kind of promise. We will not only give you an education, we're going to give you a life. We will not only give you an education, we're going to give you a whole new way of being. Does that make sense? So as we interact with the world, it is a, a, a way of, of justifying your behavior, your life, your, who you are as a person. All of our interactions are, uh, are, we're doing something much more than just purchasing something. We're believing something about ourselves. John makes a distinction between the world and the things of the world. And... Uh, he describes for us that behind the world is desire, and behind these things are desires as well. And these things are being used to, to give us an identity, to make us uh, experience a greater sense of well-being. As we think about 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, we realize that what the world is actually doing is it's it's dehumanizing us. It's taking us and it's drawing us into a way of living and being. And it's drawing us into a whole new, a whole new way of living and a whole new universe. But what tends, tends to happen there is that we as human beings are dehumanized. In other words, we are entertained and told that is all that we live for. We, are a, we consume something and we are we are told that is what you are. You are a consumer. In every one of these exchanges, as we interact with the world, we are giving ourselves away. Uh, trusting, for instance, in, um, in, in a corporation, let's say, to actually make you into someone, a, 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 to actually do something that is reserved for God alone is actually a dehumanizing process. Uh, the giving, uh, and usually our interactions, particularly in our modern or perhaps post-modern era, are very much driven by images. We are drawn into a whole new universe by the imagery that, that is presented to us. Uh, ESPN has a, a thing called Sports Center. Uh, if you don't know it, uh, that's okay. Uh, Sports Center comes on three times a day. It's a new program each time, and then it's repeated throughout the day. I've only seen it a couple times. Sports Center has been on since 1982. 
they have produced 30,000 episodes. They're, they're, and as you watch SportsCenter, you're not just hearing about whether the Yankees won or not. You are entering into a whole, new, a whole different kind of universe, a whole universe in which you could spend the rest of your life, uh, statistics, uh, top 10 plays. Uh, you could go on and on. And, there's a, and w- what's quite amazing is 24 hours a day, there is, it, it wasn't enough to have one ESPN. They have three of them now. What does that tell you? It tells you that Americans in particular are consumers of images. We are, we, 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 we want, we are, we're actually cooperating with a, a desire to depart from what is real and essential and true. And so that is not to say, now I want you to hear your minister kind of slam ESPN. What happens is that sports have a place, but they become too much. They become far too much. They become an, an, an entity in themselves and a way of living, a way of, of being. So that people cannot imagine not having ESPN. They can't imagine having it. Um, some people are so committed to this, the, the, the world of sports that they actually name their children. There's something like 250, 200, some number of kids that they've been named Espen for ESPN. Okay? <laughs> So um, that's commitment. That's commitment to a worldview. That's commitment to a way of being. So um, we could move around. Uh, we could move around to all these different spheres of society. Politics, in particular, would be one. Uh, the Caesars have always had a hard time limiting themselves. A personal freedom was never something the Caesars came up with. Uh, so the, the state in general, historically, has always had a hard time limiting itself. Uh, not a popular idea that you would come in there and you would, you would say that the, the state has important things, but it's limited. It has a totalizing effect. Interesting, in John 19, when uh, Christ was being tr- on, put on trial, uh, some shouted, we have no king but Caesar. That is, that there's a conspiracy, an agreed-upon uh, uh, arrangement that between the state and those individuals, they were willing to give themselves over uh, to Caesar. So there's a strong gravitational pull that's always at work uh, in our lives, in, these, in, these, in the, this whole realm that's called the world. Let me ask you this, then. Have you escaped its gravitational pull? Uh, we all experience that tug and that pull, and, um, but have you escaped it? The Apostle Paul in Acts 17 uh, tells the Greeks uh, about God, and they say that the God he is talking about is the God in whom we live and move and have our being. Let me ask you, uh, where do you live and move and have your being? Um, is, uh, is there uh, evidence in your life that you have escaped these entrapments, these, this way of being, these allurements, this, this philosophy of living that is actually anti-God? Is there evidence in your life that you have now experienced the, the love of the Father 
that John mentions here. I want you to reflect on that. Uh, and if you can say with confidence, Lord, I am struggling, but I have received the, your love through Jesus Christ. Uh, s- may you journey well with that, with that longing and that desire because we are here as a church to help you foster that love and to foster uh, those new desires. In many ways, we are like Isaiah, who discovered that he was a man of unclean lips, Isaiah 6, and that he lived among a people of unclean lips. What this means is that this worldliness has tainted all of us, and it has tainted the church. We are always being influenced in some way or another by the culture around us. And that includes our church. But what the task of Scripture is, is to point out where our loyalties lie. Where do we truly live and have our being? Let me ask you, by way of just the things that occupy your mind, the things that if you were to be caught daydreaming and then had to write down your thought on a a three-by-five card, what do you daydream about? What grips your heart? Uh... Is it the Father's love for you, or is it something wrapped up in these, this fleshly desire that John describes? If anyone loves the world, listen to this, and let's just take this for what it is. Look at John 2.15. Uh, John, uh, John if anyone loves the world, listen to this, the love of the Father is not in him. Uh, so, we try as a church to make sure that the center of Christianity is not you. <laughs> That's good news. We try to make sure that the center of Christianity is not what's, how you're feeling or how you're doing, but the center of Christianity is the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. That's the epicenter of our hope. And so what John is arguing is that anyone who has tasted of that hope, who has centered their life in what Christ has done, they have experienced the love of the Father. They're out from under the grip of the world. And so it's through Jesus, who's the one who conquered the world, that by faith we join in him who has conquered the world. So the love of the Father there in this passage is actually the key to the passage. It isn't about, well, I just need to read my Bible more. Oh, boy, I need to really get away from the world, and so I just got to pray more. In other words, as Christians, it's hard for us to figure out, wait a minute, don't I just do more things to get away from the world? Or don't I, there's something I'm supposed to do to get my behavior better Wouldn't it make sense? I feel too close to the world. Actually, what you need to do is you need to believe. You need to believe in the one who came to rescue you. And in believing, your heart will be renewed because then your focus will be off of yourself, off of sort of your pragmatic sort of, well, I've done these three things, I must be okay. And now you will find you're resting only and solely in the Father's love. Christians struggle 
What does it look like to not be worldly? It's very interesting that we can, we usually externalize that. So it's usually something I do. John Piper has a very funny list of 10 things that he observed in his church that were sort of this hyper-spirituality. And I can, I, can only, I can only remember really two of them right now, but there two were, there was a group of women who really prided themselves as homeschoolers, but they went one step further. Their super spirituality included baking bread. That was the key. Uh, buying, you know, grocery store bread was somehow not worthy of a Christian. Uh, now, we all, it's, just, it's goofy, isn't it? But you could go through the, the, the history of the church. What does it look like to not be worldly? Now, there are, there are people who um, truly believe that having a glass of wine with a meal is being worldly. That is, uh, they perhaps see that in Scripture somewhere. We don't. So I want you to go home and have a glass of wine, even if you don't drink. I want you to go home and have a glass of wine. Pastor Todd said I'm supposed to do this. Just do it. Somewhere along the line, people thought of, of uh, smoking as a sin. Now, it's hard. It's those of you who, lo- who love your health and know the damage that it could cause, it's hard for us to tr- truly come to the conclusion that, that, it's, it, it, that if you smoke a pipe, you are not uh, sinning. That's just really hard. And so that is, a, that is an imposed... Um, way of being separate from the world. The Bible tells us to be separate from the world, but here's our struggle. Let's keep the focus on what the Bible does tell us. And then let's not, uh, let's not do ourselves the favor of creating another, another circle of things that would say, this is what spirituality looks like. So in this passage, there is hope. And the hope is in the Father's love. Well, what is the Father's love? Well, let's just contrast it with the world. What are people trying to do through the world system? They're trying, to, they're trying to present themselves as having arrived in some way. I'm staring at that financial advertisement on Gate 84 at San Francisco Airport, and it's communicating to me, we can justify you. We can make your miserable life work for you. You need our wisdom and we will guide you into the promised land. They would love, it's not just the marketing world. I willingly give them ideas about their company that they don't even think about. I want to give myself over in order to show you that I have arrived, to show you that I'm okay, to show you that I have made it. The Father's love is completely opposite of this. It is not for those who have, uh, who have uh, somehow achieved something in life. The Father's love is for those who say, I cannot, I, I could never. The Father's love is about the justifying of sinners. The Father's love is his receiving them and adopting them into his family. The Father's love is saying, I know what makes you tick. I know your, your, uh, your human resistance to me. And 
the Father sends his Son on a rescue mission for those who are more than happy in the world, more than content, more than satisfied. You see, when John says that it's the boastful pride of life, we all are there. We all are saying we believe that we are at our very core self-sufficient, self-made. We don't need revelation. We don't need a Savior. And it's to those that the Father's love comes and falls upon. And so let us do this. Let us let the Father's love train us, train us away from all other false gospels, all other, the world is filled with mythology, filled with promises, filled with ideas that will never, ever come to pass. And how do we know that? Because this passage tells us that the world is passing away. How do we know that? Because Christ has come. Uh, Throughout the New Testament, you have the, the arrival of Christ as this decisive moment in world history. It means that we should be pursuing that which is permanent. No matter how successful one may be, if you have not hitched your wagon to what is permanent, you are simply in vanity fair. You are now perishing. Uh, And the love of the Father is not in you. What is the love of the Father? The love of the Father is eternal. The love of the Father is this justifying love where sinners come and receive the righteousness of Christ and that righteousness covers them forever and ever and ever. And so, uh, hearing this today, uh, let us, let the Scriptures discern our hearts. Let the scriptures discern our tendency toward worldliness. Yes. Let the scriptures correct us. Let the work of the church, those around you, your brothers and sisters, uh, point out to you those tendencies of pride in your heart. Don't be surprised. Uh, Don't uh, limit the grace of God among you as it's working. We need the church. We need the ministry of the word. And now we need the Lord's table. Will you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the love of the Father. Thank you that it is an extraordinary, justifying love that delivers sinners from the gravitational pull, not only of the world, but of our hearts. Father, we ask that we would not think of this world as an ogre's castle, Father, that you would be one who is just miserly in joy. That you have created all good things, but you don't want us to participate in them. Father, we thank you that we now can enter into the world and know its limitations. And we know you. Father, bless everyone with a correction. Where where are we living and believing? And where are we trusting? Where are we hoping? Reveal our hearts to us, Lord, as we take your supper. Father, we cry out. Receive us again in Jesus. We call upon you to receive our repentance. Father, may we as a church be for the world as we are against the world. 
Father, may we hold forth the gospel among all these vain pursuits. Father, may we take the gospel and move into our various callings and redeem those areas with character that is rooted in your grace. Father, help us to love the world like you love the world. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.